there is no generalization. Like sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Most of the time it, it fits, but sometimes it doesn't. If certain requirements aren't given, it will not be that way. And so to understand that the higher level of complexity, I would apply the same thing to poker. I play a session, I mark hands, then I have 35 hands, I study and learn these 35 hands because the biggest driver and the strongest driver for me is my own curiosity. Hi, it's Ranchix. The following is my conversation with Fedor Holtz. He's one of the most successful and inspiring poker players out there. A few years ago, he was voted number one online poker player and number one live poker player in the world. Fedor has won WSOP, EPT and WPT titles and has over 40, that's 4-0 million US dollars in tournament winnings. So when it comes to building a successful poker career, he really knows what he's talking about. I really enjoyed this conversation. Fedor shared lots of powerful insights and advice about poker, business and life. I'm sure many of you will find this very, very helpful. Timestamps are in the description. And as always, I'll share my key takeaways from this episode on my newsletter. So sign up for that on runchexpodcast.com. And now enjoy the conversation with Fedor Holtz. What a pleasure to have you on. Second time on the show. This time we had a, have a bit more time and uh, no live audience. So we're going to really dive deep on this one. I'm happy to be here. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, so even though I have so many questions to you, so many important questions that I, I want to specifically address with you because I want to learn from you. But first, let's address the elephant in the room, uh, the upcoming challenge against Victor, Limitless. Um, tell me about it, because basically you put out a tweet yesterday, obviously mm -hmm. Limitless. Um, many of you guys already know he, I think like... Um, Called me out. You can ago. say it. he called me out. He, he, yeah, he called, he called his podcast. And he was just, uh, oh, I'm, you know, whatever he wants. <laughs> I'm gonna play him drunk. Yeah. So that that was like four months ago or five months ago, something like that. Be, before yeah. New Year's, I think. He called you out. He's gonna play. He can play you drunk. Uh, and yesterday, you put out, put out a tweet. Let's do it. So tell me about it. First of all, why now? Um, I mean, oftentimes there's simple answers and it's just, it, it's a good time frame. Uh, for me, it fits well. I'm at home. I have some time, um, the next three, four weeks. And also like there was Doug against Nigriano going on. So I didn't feel like, you know, like, uh, running another challenge at the same time when there's one or two others going on. So I was more like, okay, when this is done, like, I, I think that's a good window. Um, and it, it's more for me, it's not this grudge match testosterone, like I'm going to, you know, crush this guy's head in like, that's not what it's about for me. It's more, um, I think he's a, he's a fun guy. He has a great personality. I, I, I think he's really likable. Mm. Um, I like Victor and it's about, for me, it's really about the challenge. I know he's one of the best. Um, he has this cocky attitude sometimes. So I, I enjoy playing against uh, personalities like that, where they, I know he's going to take it serious, but there's also this element of he's going to drink and we're going to be on zoom. So it has this fun element too. Mm -hmm. And this, I, I love this mix of fun on the one side, but then also, 
competitiveness on the other side. And I just mm-hmm. want to see, um, see how it's going. And, and it's going to be like a Kickstarter for me to work on my game and, and dive into spots and I'm going to be super zoned in. So I'm, I'm hyped. Awesome. And you guys already agreed on the structure. Uh, you're starting what, like next week or something like that? Yeah, so we're going to put out that it's still in the last uh, breaths of finalizing. It's um, going to be um, probably 100, 200. We will see. We will stream it. So that's going to be the fun part. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be on Zoom talking and he's going to drink. Um, he's not spotting me big blinds most likely. Um, I didn't even really ask for that. Um, so just going to be like... Him drinking. Let's see how much uh, how much difference that's gonna make. How, how mm. used he is to that. That's that's just I think a fun fun part of it. And then um, we don't want to play too many hands. Like I felt especially with Nigriano against Doug, it was um, like kind of drawn out, and it's these lengthy challenges. Like maybe we do more later, or are we gonna do it in segments? But for now, we said you know like around three to four sessions, probably most likely four. And just bang them out and and you know like play four or five hours or whatever and have some have some fun uh, in the evening. I, th- I I think that's going to be a more fun format and then take it from there. Right, and it's going to be two tables, right? Um, we actually were thinking about just doing one table. Um, okay. We would both prefer two ta- uh, prefer two tables in terms of playing, mm-hmm. but for to follow the action, right? Like when you talk about a hand and when you're like when you are on Zoom, like I feel we would be both more um you know just just not talking and like looking at the action if we would play two so we decided to play one so that we we actually talk always about this hand and and it's always that one so Mm -hmm. so how is the talking gonna be uh what's your idea you're actually streaming it i suppose with a delay but cards are gonna be up or what's the cards up um it's gonna be cards up and yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be really awesome Interesting. And so how about the commentary? So how do you do the commentary then? Because you surely if you're connected on the same call, you can't really, well, guys, you know, here I have the full house and uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, right? it's so not going to be, gonna... so it's basically us two talking. Right. Um, and we're going to just uh, try to pick up reads, trash talk each other, like just literally talking within the hand. And then all this, like, so the talking and the whole cards are with a probably 30-minute delay on, on Twitch or something. Fantastic. I love the idea. It's uh, yeah. it's going to be so much fun, especially with him drinking <laughs> along the way. Exactly. So he's it's drinking and trash of, talking, yeah. and then you, you see the hands we're playing and the talking. So I think that I think that's going to be... Also for uh-huh. us, like, it's going to be fun to watch, you know, how he's talking with specific hands and so on. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think I think that's going to be cool. Yeah. Oh man, I'm looking forward to this. This is this is awesome. And uh also like depending how much he's drinking, but day four may be difficult for him, I guess. I mean, I think we, we're probably gonna do, you know, like a day or two breaks, but not yeah. much longer. So it's probably gonna be three sessions a week. So Right. Well, this is awesome. I uh, I'm glad this is happening and uh just the fact of having the cards up. It's gonna make the whole thing so much more interesting, and uh, I agree. And the trash talk element to it is just uh, just beautiful. I hope there's gonna be more matches like this. I mean, I'm not encouraging people to go on drinking now on, on the on their Zoom calls and uh, and the Twitch streams or whatever. But the trash talk plus the cards up, this is gonna be just uh, most likely a very very fun format to watch. 
Um, so how did he respond to it, actually? When you said, okay, let's do it, what, what was his response? I mean, there's no way to say no, right? Like, Of course, I'm, yeah. I would, I, would send him a, I would send him a Twitter video for the, like one, one a week for the next weeks if he would say no. Like that's, yeah, of course. That's not, uh, not an option. So it was more like figuring out how we do it than, mm-hmm. uh, than like it's more, you know, it's more run when, how, um, what state, like all this type of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's more about the details. Right. And it's all going to be on GG, I suppose, right? It's going to be on GG, um, and they're going to help with streaming it it's on, and so on. So it's going to be it's going to be good quality. Nice, nice. Well, this is awesome. I'm uh, I'm really glad this is happening. Me too. Um, so, what's your plan? You you got like a week to prepare. It's going to be heavy lab work for you. Yeah, I I mean, there's two sides to it, right? On the one side is okay, how much can I learn in you know seven to fourteen days? Um, so I will try to brush up on the most relevant parts. You know, look at the spots that happen the most frequent, like pre-flop and and flop, and um, just try to get like again like a solid understanding because I haven't played heads up in quite some while as well. So just again making sure like. That I that I feel solid and it's it's really more actually it's not so much about me diving into super specific theoretical spots it's more about feeling confident and that's the second part where it's for me the prep is really about feeling good when I play because um, on top of that foundation it's just going to be about me not not deviating it's not so much about um, how long I can play a game it's how long I can not play B or C game. So um, it's really for me about not tilting, you know, not getting too emotional. Like if I lose five bind, like continue focusing on mm-hmm. on making good decisions and still staying confident because that's the, I think that's the main thing is I, when I played Philly Smees, it's the same thing. You know, when I, uh, when we played, I, I took 10 binds of him in, in our first game in 700 hands or something. And it and like eight of them in, in 200 or whatever. And then I play him the, the next time and he buries me 10 binds in like the first 200 hands. And I was, after losing six binds or seven, I was like, question, like I started to question the plays I was making is like, I, you know, I had a, I had a bluff on the river and it's three, like, I think it's, you know, a, a good three times pot bet. And then he starts hero calling some third pair stuff. And I'm just like, holy shit, like, does this guy, you know, does he have strong reads on me or so, so these dynamics, when I then start not following my intuition and I start questioning myself, there's a lot of energy going into asking questions where it should be going into, into the game and focusing on, on bringing my game. And so in heads up, I feel, as I said, it's more about not drifting into this, um, this ether of questions and distraction. Mm. So how do you manage that when you start feeling that you're <laughs> slipping out of focus and you start questioning your decisions? What's your process to get back to, mm-hmm. well, let's say to get back to not playing the CNB yeah, game, right? Totally. So I try to strengthen the place I'm, I want to be at. So when you get lost, it's mostly about how well you know the place that you want to be at right Mm -hmm. um so if you know it very very well then it's much easier to find your way back and that's 
that's what I'm trying to. That's why I'm working with Elliot before the session. That's why it's not about the theory so much. It's more about how does it feel when I'm totally zoned in mm -hmm. and to then be able to right now in one second, be like, okay, how does that feel? And then I can feel back into that. So when I feel I'm drifting away, when I feel like, ooh, you know, I, I just do something to prove something. I do something because I'm scared. Like when I feel this, because it's, it's like a, there's an emotion, there's a tension, there's, there's something. Then I'm like breathing. And then I try to go back to that place of no, like I, I, I'm, I feel good. I'm confident. Um, and I try, I'll try my best hand after hand. And then that's, that's the practice. I'm just trying hundreds and thousands of times to, to do that over and over again. Hmm, interesting. So you approach it more from a sort of mental perspective and, and a physical perspective of how you're feeling uh, in the process of playing. Exactly. is a really, really interesting way to approach it. And um, I don't think many people focus on it as much as you do, um, probably to their detriment, really. <laughs> but... Uh, it's like my own approach for the longest time was always to focus on the process, right? To, to have mm -hmm. the same thinking process throughout and to tackle any sort of swing situation with coming back to the process, right? So mm -hmm. trying to tackle the same problem logically. But I see how it's not as potent as putting in the, the feeling, the emotions in there as well, because eventually... There's so much variance in poker and it's so easy to be on top of things when you're running good and then slip out really quickly um, when things are not going so good. So how quickly can you get back to focus is so important, right? And I, I feel like if you're focusing on, on how you're feeling and uh, how your thinking process is going on, you, you're, you can recognize that you're slipping out much quicker and just the act of recognizing it and then pulling yourself back, that's already so helpful. Yeah, but I would, I would argue it's not, logic is not the issue. The logic is there. The logic, mm. the logic is present. It's about how, when you are emotionalized, when you feel these strong emotions, it overrides the logic mm -hmm. and it pops up different logics. It's, it's like when you're scared, the logic of, oh, I should be three-butting this hand because it's my top 27%. Like this logic is not so important anymore. Now suddenly the logic of, oh, I need to prove this guy something to show my, like now that becomes the, the main prevalent one. So yeah. I feel it's not about, um, for me, it's not so much a logic thing where it's more something emotional. And so I want to work on that emotional side of it because the logic is, it's not that I forgot the logic. It's not that I, that I'm not aware. Like sometimes that's the case too. It's like, I'm in a spot and I feel like, oh, I, I just don't really know much about this. Right. Like I, right. I'm super there, I'm present, but I just don't have much experience in the spot. This exists too. Right. But, but let's say a very clear example of, um, Philly Smith, I, start calling a hand that I know is one or two bips um, out of the defending range. And so it's a slightly losing defend and still I did it. And so what led me to do it? Like, I, I know I don't do this when I'm in a very sound state because I, there's no reason to, um, but I create this new reason when I feel 
like now suddenly there's something else that demands something, right? Like now, oh, I got to grind back. I got to win back eight binds to the, and, um, and that's the part that's overriding. And so I'm focusing on, on, okay, acknowledging this feeling is what, like, oh, I, I feel like I'm anxious right now or I, I'm trying to force something. And then I try to feel into, okay, um, what's that other feeling like? What's that feeling where I feel comfortable and when I, where I feel mm-hmm. um, at peace? And, and that's what I mean by strengthening this moment is I, I try to tie that to different experiences is when did I feel that the strongest? And so I have a very clear, like I, I know exactly um, August 2017 Barcelona. Like I know exactly the moment when I was playing three-handed against Timothy Adams and Sam Greenwood. Like I've never felt more zoned in and playing poker Mm-hmm. And I feel like I internalize this moment so much that I can literally in one second tap into this emotion and just be totally there when I play. Mm-hmm. And so I try to practice this hundreds of times to just whenever I feel I'm drifting that I can go back to um, feeling in the zone about about playing poker. Mm-hmm. Oh, tell me about that moment, the, the one that you remember <laughs> the specific date and almost the time of. Uh, how did it feel? It was just um, like... I would say electrifying is from an, from an experiential point. I, I literally felt like my entire body is, is I can feel my entire body and it's just an heightened sense of awareness. It just felt like I, I saw more, I felt more and more was I, I, I used more. I took mm-hmm. a break. So this was after, like, this was basically one of the first tournaments I played after, um, after quitting and I felt so free and so just doing it for the fun. And I could feel how there was more tension, especially playing heads up against Sam. I could feel that there's more tension in him, you know, like I, I felt like I was free and, and he was more around, okay, winning, like winning is really important. And for me in that sense, in that regard, I didn't really care so much about winning. I really just cared about getting the most out of this situation. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of spots when I rewatch it now, I can see how I I saw things and I knew I wasn't able because I wasn't able to execute it at all at all times. Mm-hmm. But I picked up some really really strong reads, um, and if I would be able to act at all times on that type of feeling. I would have just absolutely destroyed life. Like it, it, because it's there, there's information there all the time, how they check, how quickly they check, where they look, how they, how they act. And I feel you can read so much into this. It's just more about the translation from experiencing it to what you do with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he snap checks the turn being able to very, very quickly pr- like process this into how he did it with what kind of demeanor and like what type of board and in what type of pot with what kind of range and then come to a proper conclusion where it's never a close decision. Like, and then being able to put that into a range and then take the right exploit. Like this was difficult, but, but that feeling of really totally being there and picking up these things, that's something I I love to to tap into. So what is the biggest challenge when you're trying to implement that information into your decision? Like what are the blocks that if there weren't there, that you would be able to always basically use that information? Um, I mean, I would say one big thing is just a theoretical baseline. So when you don't, when I don't really know what the levers are, right? So in cash games, that's a great example is I, 
I feel I have still similar good understanding of how what the tendency of people is, but I'm much worse at implementing it into sound strategy mm-hmm. because I understand the preflop equilibrium's worse. I understand the postflop equilibrium's worse. You know, it's a different stack size I'm used to. It's no anti, which I'm not used to. Um, it just to- leads to totally different ranges, and then suddenly I'm like okay, I feel this is a, you know, this is a spot where they are leaning towards this. But if my baseline assumption is totally wrong, like my result is also wrong. And then I have a harder time visualizing it. I have a harder time adapting to it. And then I think that's exactly what, what low stakes or mid stakes players, what their blocker is as well. It's the same for me. There is just a, a difficulty to compute from start to beginning because you have like there's gray like lots of gray spots somewhere in between and the assumptions you make are also off and the more that is the the more difficult it is to come to conclusions right but let's say in that three-way situation mm-hmm. with adams and greenwood you were in your comfort zone you know the theoretical baseline for that type of thing is i mean you're you've been in that type of situation for many a time and uh gladly yes gladly and uh, and luckily and you you've you've closed the deal many times as well and got the trophy um so what what's the blocker there because you're saying you saw something but then you didn't act on it i i want to try to yeah I think the difficulty there is um, is that it's not just isolated that feeling. It's it's um, it that triggers a lot of stuff. So when I felt that and I saw that, I I had it was actually a specific hand where I have two pair, and on the turn it con like it um, it brings a one card straight, and there's a flush, and so I have a very clear. Like my line is super clear solver wise, I would say at least. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of there's a couple options, but not many. Like it's it's basically always a bluff catcher, and maybe I bet small somewhere, uh, but it's it's like it's very easy line. Like there's no way I put much money in there, and like it's a kind of one bet uh, street or maybe two street type of hand. So it's was it's very like this for me is very clear, or at least I, I think it's quite clear, mm-hmm. and so. So there, then suddenly I'm on the river where it goes check, check on the turn. And I pick up that read where he snap checks the turn, which I believe is is something where there's no way in this situation now trying to rationally put some, some explanation behind it is he had a clear decision. And I believe that in that moment, what I picked up was, oh, he know like, it just felt like he knows what to do. And there's not... There's no way he knows with exactly each hand in his range what he should be doing. Because there are some hands where you will start thinking, right? So there is a variety of hands in his range. Um, it was like jack, nine, eight, seven type of board. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe it's more a, it was more a jack, 10, eight, seven board, I think. And then... Uh, I have jack seven. And I think it was a flush. It was either a flush draw on the flop and it completes on the turn or that. Yeah, I, I think that's mm-hmm. that's how it was. And so I it goes check, check and turn snap checks. And so now it was in a spot where 
I can discount a variety of his hands because there's no way if he has king five with uh, like a five of hearts or the king of hearts, like there's no way he's just going to snap check that turn. And so now it's about first, it's not only like, yes, you say the spot is common, but it's not common that I picked up this read. And so I have to first I have to think, okay, what did I pick up? Right. Because it's a feeling. So I pick up a feeling of certainty. I'm like, he's certain. Huh? Okay. What does certainty mean? for his range. And then I'm trying to visualize what his range is and I'm, I'm trying to compute, okay, what hands are in the certain category? And then maybe maybe he's certain with, you know, um, a flush or he's certain with a one pair type of hand or he's certain with, so so then I'm thinking, okay. And I, I believe in that spot, it's it's much more about this computing something that I've never, I've never been in this spot. I've never seen exactly this run, uh, like this, this situation. And so now then it actually becomes a very unique spot mm-hmm. and it's about computing this, this emotion into, okay, what do I do with this now? Um, and all the doubts that come with it is like, wow, okay. Uh, what does that lead to? And then what does that lead to for my decision? Right? Because then it goes check, check on the turn and the river is, I think a blank. And then he now pots and I'm like, okay, like theoretically I have the clearest bluff, like it was heads up. I have the clearest bluff catcher ever, um, but I feel there's no bluff line he takes that he snap checks the turn with and then bombs the river because why, like mm-hmm. wh- what type of candidate should that be? Um, and so afterwards thinking it more and more through i think it would be a fold and it would be a very exploitative fold but Mm -hmm. i i think it's uh the would have been the best line and so there you can see how it's difficult to to implement it Mm. it's very interesting and and i love love your example because it's it puts you like this new information puts you into a new spot because all of a sudden you have to compute and um yeah, that that's beautiful. Um, it's I would say the best description for it is you get new information, but that's exactly what it is. It's new information, and computing that information isn't so easy at all times in that spot, right? Oftentimes you see your opponent and you 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 pick up an emotion. A lot of people pick up emotions all the times, but doing something with that, right? Like if my opponent is nervous that can mean so many different things like that's not just automatically it's like oh he has three percent top range like let me play perfectly according to that maybe he's nervous because he's bluffing maybe he's nervous because he's he's has a really strong hand like there is a variety of different individual tendencies there is potential outcomes for all and computing all of this to to lead to something it it changes probabilities. It change like it's it's different for each human, like for each human, for each situation. And so I, I feel that's the difficult part is like computing new information in a way that you can actually do something with it. Mm-hmm. Whenever computing new information, at least for me, um, I think the most important thing that I encounter, which the most, well, basically, yeah, the most important thing is to ask yourself the right question, right? Which is especially in the new situations, is difficult. Because if I've been in a similar situation before, I know what the question is, and I know how to get the answer. But with, when you're getting this new information, you're in, in a new compute spot, how do you choose the question? Do you, do you have some sort of go-to ideas? How do you decide what is a good question to pursue, what is not? Because obviously, in, in real poker, we're limited to time. We can't just sit there and uh, think 
about the hand for 30 minutes because, well, that shouldn't be allowed, right? But uh, <laughs> so how do you go about it? How, when, you, when you have a difficult problem to solve, how do you start digging at it? Yeah, good question. I, first, I'm trying to feel what it reminds me of. And I think that's already a, a spot where I'm much different than others. Is I think I mostly also the reason why I think I stayed on a rather high level over time is I don't work by same same. It's not that I I can tell you oh I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. Is I, I'm very good at telling you I've seen something similar at some point somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the reason I think also there is why I'm good at at. Um, abstracting these type of life situations and why I've also made a lot of mistakes there is because the there's flaws. I, I try to go through my mental emotional database and try to connect it to something. And then there's, it's, there's always more complexity to it. You know, yes, maybe that guy's nervous, but maybe my interpretation of, I mean, nervous is just a, a bucket and, mm-hmm. and like an idea as well, but it's, in the end, it's something super complex, right? Like he's emotionalized. He's, there's something happening. Maybe his pulse increased and so on. But what exactly is happening in him is there's so much more going on. And so to try to, to bring this into something actionable and to, to bring it in a shape and form that you can do something with it, I think the best way to do is to feel into similar situations you encountered with yourself, with others, and try to compare these feelings and feel, how oh, okay, what's different? How did that feel? And so on to mm-hmm. relate, to relate to that person, what's going through in that person's mind? What is he experiencing? And um, then the other part I always try to bring in is, is my level of certainty, right? Oftentimes I pick up something and I'm not certain about what I picked up. If it's in a, if it's in a personal relationship or in a friendship, then I would ask, I would say, Hey, I, I feel something. How, how are you feeling? What are you experiencing? I can't put it somewhere. And that's, mm-hmm. that's also something that I tried. I obviously you can't people, you can't really ask people at a poker. I mean, you can, you can try, but you should definitely um, do that with Victor. After yeah, he like, had a couple hey, glasses, I, Victor, you, you look a bit pale. <laughs> You're feeling you, all you're right. You're experiencing something right now, Victor. What, what is it? I, like, t- <laughs> tell me more about it. Um, is it, is that fear on your face? Yeah, that would be so um, awesome. So, so yeah, I, I think that's the internal question I'm asking myself is what is he experiencing? What is he feeling? And then the better I understand that, the better I'm also able to put that into, into action. Right. And I, I've hear a lot, many times you said, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm experiencing. Are you, have you always been like this, or more like a tactile sort of, person of you know feeling and uh, learning by feeling and experiencing things or is it something that developed over time um no i think i was more i would have said much more thinking uh years ago and i would have explained it more with more conviction and with more details mm-hmm because I, I think in my mind, I was, I was striving towards more of a final explanation that is quantifiable, which I, I'm much more of the belief right now that I, that the general idea of, I know nothing and there's infinite complexity to, to it. And so I, 
I, I take it as ideas and I take it as, as potential explanations, but it's, it's never final. And so I, I try to give it more room to be, be complex as well. When I'm feeling something, I don't say, oh yeah, he's feeling that. And that's the explanation. I'm trying to be more ah, interesting. Um, I pick up this, but there's probably a lot more to it. And I would try to do my best to like, because then I'm also open and curious to try to really understand and dig deeper and, and, and get more um, connection to it. And then I feel like I also get much better at, at understanding it. But in terms of general learning, um, what you asked about, general learning in that sense, I try to let go of explanations as something to hold on to. I, I try explanations as um, a way to explore, a way to discover, but not to finalize something, not to put it in a box. And I think that's a, that's a big difference between how I experience others around me and, and how I experience learning. Because if I learn chess right now, for example, there, there's so many people that are better than me, like rating wise, um, who give me feedback. And I, I, now I'm much more certain around how I wanna learn. There's very few, like I have clear questions and, but I also have a very clear path of how I want to learn the game. And a lot of feedback they're giving me, I discard. And it's not to be disrespectful, it's just because I feel it's not the way I want to think about it. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to think about, I always need to do this, or this is a good, like, I want to understand, I want to feel that I, that for me, it makes sense why this is how it is. And it's not, it's not about, oh, this is good or this is bad. No, it's, it's a breakdown of every little, like of every path of the development of what that choice means. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in poker, for me, it's the same thing as I, I don't want to stop at that point where it's like, oh, it's always like that, you know, like that's the perfect range. That's why I'm also anti-solvers because I feel it, it uh, in, in that sense, how a lot of people use it, it's they believe that's the answer. That's the solution. They memorize the solution and they don't use it as much to, to improve their own way of thinking. For me, it's more an idea. It's, it's, it's one limited environment that I designed and it gives you the mathematical solution of that matrix or that calculation. So you give something three options and you just let it play against itself. And then it gives you the, the end result and Pio or, or whatever solver does that with, you know, like a hundred options, like three on each street and one response or something like that. And for me, it's about, okay, you see a result of that, but oftentimes people compare the one environment with the other environment without understanding that it's not the same. Like a solution is not GTO because it's two totally different environments. So you can use the one idea, the one abstraction to learn and to trace like, ah, interesting. If I would set it up like this, then it would lead to that. But mm -hmm. I, I have so many conversations where people don't understand that when you give it one response, it will impact the entire tree. If you just have one race size, you will choose other options before, right? If you just have one river response, it will choose one option on the flop much more or, or much less in certain situations because your opponent can only respond with one thing on the river. And, and um, there will be spots where if you give them five options or 10 options, that will be significantly changed. Mm -hmm. um, and so these type of spots, I think people aren't so aware of it because they're not thinking like trying to solve it, these type of situations themselves. 
And so they don't question the result of a solver. So they run a simulation with two bed sizes and one response, and then they're surprised that uh, you know they're not um, moving up to high stakes because they're they're not as flexible in their way of thinking. Mm. Yeah, I want to go deeper into this, and and I also want to add another misconception that people have, and I completely I'm completely with you on how you described uh, the misuse of solvers by a lot of people. Another misuse comes from not understanding that just because one strategy is dominant, so solver really prefers that strategy, doesn't mean that there's no other strategy that is very close to it. Because very often you can find that if you put some other constraints, a solver is going to solve a completely different strategy, completely different bet sizes, for example. And the difference in EV for both uh, strategies is going to be negligible. Right? It's not like one strategy is crushing the other by a magnitude, which means even though the execution is completely different and the way you construct your ranges is completely different and the way you think about it completely different, it just means that we should use it as, as you described it, as a learning tool, as a learning environment where you can dig down to the first principles of what exactly is going on. How can I use a similar model to think about these things in the real game when, I, when I'm trying to compute, basically. But I want to yeah, circle back yeah. to uh, what you, because you've mentioned that before you were the kind of guy who was almost said, well, fuck it, looking for the final solution, but in the context of poker, right? Looking yeah. for the truth, sort of. And then you went away from it thinking that you don't want to hold on to the explanation or, or the findings that you found. You don't want to hold on to it as the absolute truth that is just, uh, that's the only way to play. So how did this transition happen? Why did, what did, you, why did you change your approach? I, I wouldn't say it was such a binary change. So it wasn't, I believe there's a truth and then I stopped believing it. I think it mm -hmm. was more a, a growing process. And okay. A big, a big part of it, I believe, was feeling that limitation. Because in the end, it's an endless cycle of, I get to a point, oh, I believe now I got it figured out. And then I realize there's maybe more to it. And then I get to a new point and I think I got it figured out. And I experienced that with others at, at all points and all times. You, you can really see that in, in language. I think language is a great way to identify that. Is when I talk to... Um, poker code members and, and about just in language, I can see where they have these limitations. So for example, they would say they play mid-stakes and they would say, oh, you know, against against regulars, I, I'm playing like great and I'm to, like against them, I feel super sound. And, um, and then immediately my, like, I think that for me is like, okay, you should work on exactly this <laughs> because that's where they believe they got it figured out. It's like, oh, this area, you know, I have figured out. Mm -hmm. And there's a degree of prioritization where you realize, okay, some things might be prioritized higher. So I want to work on this before I want to work on that. That makes sense. But there's always a limitation when you believe that um, in this type of area, I have it figured out. And you will, see, so then I always ask the question, okay, how do you think the win rate will differ between you against the regs a high stakes player against the regs and Timothy Adams against the regs. 
And then it's basically exactly the same where it's like, yeah, the win rate increases. Like that guy has a higher win rate against the regs you're playing against. And Timothy Adams has probably the highest win rate against the guys you're playing. And so it's as important to look at that, why that's, why, what are they doing different than it is to, to look at any others maybe even more important. And what I found interesting there is they use this thought process to protect themselves from uncomfortability. So they use this thought process to have an 8% three bidding range because they believe that, you know, they know their regs, they know their regs are too tight. That's why they three bet too tight. And so, so it leads to these very substantial, like these mistakes that they're making and like just being too passive because that's their, that's their justification, their internal confirmation of, I know what I'm doing here when I play against regs and, and you play against regs there, you know, 60% of your hands or whatever, or, or 80. And so you make these mistakes on a constant basis and it keeps you from looking at that and actually being like, huh, interesting. What, what is Timothy Adams doing different than what I'm doing? And then you will see he three bits more against regs. You know, he, he check raises more against regs. He, he triple barrels more against regs. Like he's just more like, he's a very sound, very solid player. He's not super, super crazy, but he still does all these things more than I do. And so how, what can I learn from him? That to me would be the step to go from mid, mid to high stakes in a very, very simple fashion. Mm, I love that you brought up this example because it's, and also the question that you're asking these people is, is a beautiful way to reframe the beliefs because it's too easy to say, well, I'm very comfortable in these spots. But when you're faced with the question of, okay, put it in perspective, is there anybody better? Is there, you know, what does it mean that you're comfortable? Is there no point to grow, right? It, it's beautiful because indeed it's, these sort of false beliefs of I have this spot figured out against the regs, that very often is the roadblock because these are the things where probably it's a low hanging fruit of increasing your, your win rate significantly because, well, guess what? You're mostly in the spots against the regs because that's the reality of our, of our uh, environment in poker, right? So if you all of a sudden increase your win rate against the regs, well, that's, that's how you win way more. And, and it's, and it, yeah, it's a great exercise also to, if they would recognize that, then it would lead to all these follow-up conclusions. It would lead to a follow like to a, you would look in first, you would need to be more realistic with your own examination is okay. Where am I at? What am I doing? Then you would be more realistic in the examination or, or analysis of your own potential. So, mm -hmm what are where's my biggest potential for growth what are people who um are where i want to be or who are much better than me what are they doing different and what can i learn from this so it's very interesting to see that 90 percent, i would say more than 90 percent of the people i look at the people i coach the people who are eager to move up in stakes have the exact same issues mm -hmm. is I could literally, I feel like I could do a robo in the end. It doesn't help to do put out one video and then they fix. No, it, it actually requires to talk to each of them individually um, because it's about, they, they feel that the general stuff doesn't apply to them. Um, but 
when I do, it's always the same. It's literally, I, I feel like I've given the exact same feedback about 150 times at this point. Mm-hmm. And I did it personalized. And I would say the de- deviation is um, more or less uh, one or two exam. And it's, it's um, always aggressivity. It's just always exactly putting more chips in at the right points. And it's not about, like, it's just about, it's three bedding ranges, um, it's open raising ranges, it's flatting ranges, it's seabedding ranges, um, it's check raising ranges. And it's not major, like these people are playing mid, low or mid stakes uh, or high stakes for a reason. But if you look at it in detail, you will see that they almost all come from a place of avoiding mistakes. Mm-hmm. And the side effect is avoiding profit. <laughs> right. I mean, at the same time, avoiding mistakes is probably a human natural reaction. We, we are sure. trying to get away from pain. We're trying to get away from discomfort. So how do you approach that yourself and how do you help your students to tackle this of basically getting out of the comfort zone and, and, and challenging your beliefs? Um, I, I generally try to then break it down. So to then, because in the end, a lot of it is, is at this point in time, is really easy to break down in blocks, right? You can break down, open raising ranges is so easy at this point. It's mm-hmm. not about being perfect at it, right? We're not talking about uh, going from number five in the world to number one in the world. It's about beating high stakes comfortably, like playing a $200 average bind. Like I think, ev- like, I think everyone who puts in some work uh, can make that from beating mid stakes. Um, making that next step and beating high sticks, I think is much more difficult, but um, reach, you know, playing $200 regularly. Like I think that's reachable for almost everyone. Um, So for me, it's about building these blocks, right? Like how can you, there's for me, there's no way if you don't have the preflop game nailed down, like Mm -hmm. that's just something. Whereas if you're more than one pips off in most of these spots, like it's, I totally understand why you're not playing high sticks. It's, it's very straightforward. Um, it's, there's very much, uh, it's very accessible to learn and study it. And um, the, the perfect, solu- that's the thing also, the perfect solutions will not be super far away from it, right? So um, let's say, I think at this point, there's not gonna be much room where if you play a raise only strategy that in two years we find out, oh, you know, we thought it was, 20%, but it's actually 13.5%. Like, I don't think that's that's what it's going to be. Um, I think there will be maybe more advanced strategies with limping and there will be maybe different race sizes and stuff like this, I can see. But if we simplify it to this degree, I would say um, if you open raise 2.1 big blinds and you fix it to that, you cannot be 5% off. Like, that, that's just something. And, and then the same for each of these blocks, right? So um, just having a a solid understanding of the equilibrium. If you fix some points, right? If you fix an open raising size and if you fix the three bed size, roughly where am I going to be? If you're, you know, most of the people, I would say when the average three, a big blind three bed is maybe 18% or something, depending on stack size and so on. And you have 12.5 or 14, rethink that. Um, Because, and that's interesting also, I would say the exploit would probably be in the opposite direction. Like I think people raise fold too much from the button, right? So you you shouldn't have 18, you should probably have 22. Um, 
And so it's interesting to see these spots where I think you are 95% plus certain that what you're doing is not optimal and quite far away from optimal. Keep moving that needle towards um, towards more optimal and rather easy to study situations. Hmm. And how would you approach studies with that lens in mind where you should question your own beliefs regularly? Mm-hmm. How to do it in a healthy way without going crazy where you all of a sudden don't believe anything that, uh, that you, you know, you know what I mean? So yeah, how would you approach that? So my there, I don't really have a plan or something that I share. It's more, um, a natural feeling. So for example, again, chess is a great example because it's much easier to study than poker mm. for me at least. So what I do there is I play and I, I want to first, I want to find a volume where it's exactly at the point where I would say it's my, it's my 90%. So I can do it for a very long time and I'm very focused. You know, not 60% where you could watch a TV show on the side and not 100% where you're drained after two hours, but more like, hey, I, it is fun. I feel good, but I'm, I'm, let's say it's a constant stream of a constant flow of energy, like this type of mode. So for me, this is, for example, when I play live poker, I'm mostly at a 70 or 75, just so that I can play 12 hours, like multiple days in a row. And then... I train to to tap into 90 or 100 for small amounts of times, mm-hmm. right? So first day I, I listen to music. I don't watch every hand because I know it would just take too much energy. And then I play very solid. I um, then tune up that focus over it. So if it's a final table, I'm at 100% for 12 hours. I'm drained after that. I'm really drained. So I'm I'm adjusting that level of focus. And so... The perfect level of studying, the, the most sustainable one for me is this 90, 80 to 90% where you could do it for a long time. You feel good about it and you learn a lot. And then what I do is when I feel I reach a certain level of amount of thoughts and questions that piled up, I'm always trying to really dive into the thought process. So I look at choices, I look at options, I try to understand why am I, what's, what do I think is the EV of these different options? How do I, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, why do I, why do I think that's the EV of this choice, right? So I have maybe, I look at my candidate move. So I have like, oh, okay, this is a candidate move. Why is that a candidate move? Why do I think, and then I have three candidates. Why is this candidate better than this other candidate? And so now let's say I play, I play a match and then I have six situations that stuck with me. And I was like, huh, I I spent quite some time there. I felt like I didn't have a good answer. Now I go to studying. So now I put up, I put up the analysis tool. I, I, it's a strong engine tool. And then I look it up and then I go to a point where I really want to compare kind of my thought process with him. So like, first I look at outliers. Was there something that didn't, didn't even cross my mind? Mm -hmm. So was there something that is a candidate move for the, the engine. That's not my candidate move at all. And then I look into why is it for that till I in, in implement it into my thought process. And then the second thing I look at is where did I have the most deviation and evaluation and why is that? And then mostly it's literally like that is I look at the line, I see a follow-up of the line and then that follow-up of the line explains roughly the the evaluation difference because I just didn't saw a follow-up 
or mm -hmm. I overestimated a follow-up or I underestimated a follow-up. And through this, repeat, rinse and repeat. Um, and then try to find patterns that continuously happen over and over again. Because in the end, these type of move sequences become similar in a certain way. Um, but just try to learn the logic and the pattern, not memorize just this spot. Mm -hmm. So then I'm trying to see how, how a certain move, why this makes sense and in what specific factors make it make sense. Because in the end, I think the difference between a lot of things I learned in like, you know, you learn in chess school or, or in clubs is they, they just smash this logic onto you because with this general logic, you make it to, a, you know, like a decent level. Mm -hmm. But the really advanced stuff is there is no generalization. Like sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Most of the time it, it fits, but sometimes it doesn't. If certain requirements aren't given, it will not be that way. And so to understand that the higher level of complexity, I would apply the same thing to poker. I play a session, I mark hands, then I have 35 hands, I study and learn these 35 hands because the biggest driver and the strongest driver for me is my own curiosity because I want to learn and want to know. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I want, I, I, I'm there with king eight off in the cutoff and I have, you know, like 10 bigs and it's like, huh, and this guy I think calls a bit too tight. And then I want to know, like, I'm sitting there like, what does, what would HRC say here? Like, I have these assumptions. I'm not sure, like king 10 off for sure, king nine off close, you know, and then, and then I memorize this moment and I, I remember it because like, because I looked it up because I wanted to know, and I still know from 2017 that, it, you know, like that's, mm. that's how I learned the best way. And I also liked the, the way you explained with the chess example of trying to find the complete blind spots, like the candidate moves that you didn't even consider. And it's so powerful in, in poker and chess and basically anything, because, you know, it's too easy to get into the comfort zone and consider only the same options and just choose um, the best from that small subset of the options that you think are the viable mm -hmm. ones, you know, and then very often the biggest gains are from these completely unexplored strategies, completely un unexplored ideas. And Which I want to add awesome. something to that. Yeah, go ahead. Because how often, I don't do it much myself, but how often do you see players intentionally playing something they consider bad just to learn more about that bad? You mean in chess? No, in both, you know, in anything, like you do something mm -hmm. that you consider like, and yours like, huh, interesting. I have that in bucket bad. Let me try it out to learn more about why I, why I think it's bad. It's a good question. You know, actually I kind of segue from here on the same line of the question, but I think the idea of getting out of the comfort zone and doing something wrong as a as a means of expanding your knowledge, expanding your skill, is actually an idea that a lot of sports people and musicians are using. Some of the mm -hmm. best albums, some of the best rock albums of all time, where when the band basically decided, you know what, for the next album, the guitar player is going to play the bass, the bass guy is going to play the ukulele, whatever, you know, the the keyboard is going to be on the drums. 
So everybody's out of their comfort zone and they tap into new creativity. They don't do what they always did. They do something completely different because all of a sudden they're they're different with their approach, right? So there are so many examples in the music world on that. And and same with with sports. Um don't know if any well, to be honest, even chess players sometimes actually go for the lines which are uh, which they know are weak lines from the very beginning, just to explore their weaknesses so that they create a weakness in the position really early on, and then they have to deal with it for the rest of the game. And in fact, uh, I remember from my conversation with Vladimir Kramnik, that's what he was doing at some point when he sort of got bored with lack of challenge in chess. And he started on purpose putting himself into challenging situations just to push himself just to put himself in situations where he has to compute when there is the new information, when there is an, a new challenge, right? I, I just love it because it's interesting that you will 95, maybe more percent of the time confirm that it's not that great. But these 5%, that's the exploration. Like, now solvers start to play in chess. It's it's a good example with like h5 and a5. Mm -hmm. There are lots of situations now when solvers just play these random moves with pawns, and you play against them, and then you realize 40 moves later is like, wow, okay, that move is actually really difficult to play against. But it was not nobody played it ever till like I don't know 2010 or something. It was like it just was a move that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And when if you would have played it and you had a coach, you know, and your coach was even if it's a GM, you would have said like, oh, that's not a good move, and then you would stop playing that move. So it killed that creativity because it's like it's category bad and it will never be played until and and so I'm just saying like I think you get to these moves when you actually actually try to independently think and test hypotheses based on your own independent thinking. That's, I believe, how you come up with new ideas. Yeah, but that independent thinking part is really, really important because another yeah. another thing that people fall into, another trap, uh, and it's very visible in chess because chess, the, the answers, the chess engine's answers are a bit more definitive in, in a sense of exactly how good or bad the move is. And uh, again, coming back to the same conversation with Kramnik, when he said a lot of the students that he worked with, they suffer from the, the younger generation of just seeing the best move, the best solver move, and going for it. And justification is, well, that's clearly the best move. And his question is, but does it fit with your repertoire? Do you know how to play these positions? Do you feel comfortable in these positions? Mm. Does your opponent feel comfortable in the position you're leading him in? He's exploitative. He's exploitative for sure. But also these are the, the questions which actually matter because eventually you're playing uh, against another human being and you need to be in your comfort zone because it's not only about purely about the move. You also have to manage your time. You have the time limit. You have the energy limit. You can't always be 100% there. So... These are the things that we shouldn't forget in, in the solver age. And the same thing applies uh, in poker. Not necessarily sure. just because the, the solver engine and the specific parameters of the solve that you set in, he says, well, 100% raise here, doesn't necessarily mean 
that's something you should be doing if after you do that you're in a in no man's land you have no idea anymore what where you're at anyway i actually recognize realized that we talked about poker way more than i intended because i actually want to ask you questions about outside of poker right mm -hmm. tying into what what you learned with poker but before we go there and actually a question that just popped into my mind what is your identity? How do you identify yourself? Who are you right now? Are you a poker player? Are you a businessman? Do you have a clear sense or does it even matter to you? It's um, it's interesting when you ask that question because you phrase it very, very specific, right? Like often people ask it more casual words like who are you, right? Or mm. what's, yeah. There, um, my my intuitive answer is mostly like I'm Fedor, mm. and it's it's not to it's not to troll. It's more I don't really feel a strong urge in either. It's like oh I'm a poker player or an entrepreneur, an investor, and I built this. And I was like no. Um, but the way you phrase the question, the first really small thing that pops up is fear. It's it's oh I got you know I got to come up with an answer. I, I have to have an answer to this question. Is and then I was mm -hmm. like it. it it's very subtle and it's, it's not a very strong feeling, but it's there. And I, I think, I think there is one element where I just say something without feeling connected to it. Mm. I, I have a line or different things that I combine based on things I've done, but I not, I, I don't feel connected to it. When I say, oh, I'm the former number one worldwide poker player, there's no emotional connection to saying that. Also, when I say I'm an entrepreneur and investor, I have no emotional connection to saying that. Mm -hmm. um, it's more, I would say the, the things I identify with, with um, that I feel connection to is I'm, I'm very curious. I love playing uh, games or generally solving puzzles. That's something I, I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. I love soccer actually i see that now again not playing for a long time as I, I really enjoy playing football um i i really like to dive into big complicated information fields so probably the points where i'm at my my peak or my where i feel the most flow is when there's so much information kind of a, a, a rather defined challenge of like, you know, kind of sorting that or bringing some structure into that or helping, supporting somehow, you know, people build something and I I can look for potential or I can look for ways for them to, you know, do that better, what they're passionate about. Like if I can enhance um, other people pursuing um, their, you know, like, their passion or what they what they really care about that's something i feel really great about and i've done it in forms of coaching or with poker code or it's not so much about hey we build a business and it's uh and it makes money it's more about that specific moment these this conglomerate of moments where i feel someone is seeing something from a new from a new perspective they didn't consider before and it's helping them to progress like that's probably my my favorite feeling. Mm. I find it interesting that you mentioned 
the honest answer of, you know, you have a line that you could sometimes fall back to, but you have no emotional connection to it, right? Which is, yeah. which is such an important realization because I think one of the reasons I'm, I was asking you this question actually is because I remember we had a conversation about uh, your decision of officially retiring from yeah. full-time poker. And when you said that you actually probably stayed a professional poker player for a bit too long, longer than you should have. And I just see it in myself included, but also in many other people that strong identity to a profession uh, is oftentimes the limiting factor, which doesn't allow you to explore other opportunities and eventually drags you deeper into the thing that you don't really want to do. Because let's say if you identify as a lawyer and you have no question of whether it's true or not, you're just going to do what the lawyer does and put up the suit and um, show up in the office. And, um, you know, depending on the, you know, if you're in London, you probably have your drug dealer on the short list of the calls and uh, that that's your life, right? But stepping away from that, strict identity is oftentimes liberating was it was it like this for you when you because obviously at some point you did uh identified as a professional poker player you must have right with when you were reaching up uh, for the top when that was no longer the case what changed for you personally it's it's liberating because because you take away a limitation it it's uh i i'm smiling because i think in the end a lot of that is it's so simple and yet so difficult mm -hmm. it's it's such a the, like abstract theoretically it's so simple it's we have beliefs we have an idea of who we are and that entails what we're doing and we force ourselves to a certain degree to do that because yeah. if that's what we believe then there's a certain energy that wants to fuel this belief because otherwise the belief has no no existence or so if you believe you're a poker player but you don't play poker then how how is that belief relevant mm. um and it's interesting because if you turn it around and let's say you take away the force from beliefs you now there's a moment where you're lost because they give guidance, right? They, they mm -hmm. help you in, in knowing what to do. Because if you believe you're a poker player, you know you should play poker. But now there's a tricky spot where maybe you don't really enjoy that to a certain degree. And that's where it gets difficult is it's not so black and white, right? It's not so, oh, either I'm a poker player and I play 40 hours or I'm not a poker player and I don't play poker. If you would t take away that power from this belief, then you could find a balance where, let's say we break it down to every minute, okay? Just to simplify, let's say every minute you would ask yourself, what do I wanna do? And if the answer would be, I wanna play poker right now, and you ask yourself that again, then there would be some perfect middle ground where you get your perfect amount of minutes you want to play poker. And, and 
that's the way and then that would also be in what way right like online live where what stakes if you so so for me the priority shifted a lot to tap into this to mm -hmm. not just be guided by my by my beliefs but more around tapping into what do i feel like and what's the expression of what i'm feeling and then suddenly i realized i've been I like certain things about poker. Oh, I love certain things about poker. I I love the traveling. I love the learning aspect. I I love my friends and the experiences we made and the challenges and the personal growth and the coachings with Ed. There were so many things I, I cherish and I love it. And I also forced myself to do a lot of things I didn't like so much. And so for me, it's more about identifying more and breaking it down into pieces where the final result could be something nobody's doing. Like it's exactly mm -hmm. my expression of what I, how I want to engage with it. And then that final result is I play, you know, maybe once a week, once every two weeks, I enjoy um, creating some content around it. And I, I really try to treat it that way as well, where if I feel like creating some content, I do it. Mm -hmm. If I feel like playing, I do it. And for me, it's, it's so like the outcome is so much better, but also it's a constant, um, constant process with myself to feel into, okay, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And because uh, I also coming back to what you said way earlier in our conversation, when you, you, you mentioned that moment in, uh, I don't, don't remember the year, 2017 or something in Barcelona, when you're yes. eventually heads up against Greenwood and you were, you know, three-way with Greenwood and Adams. And you said that was the moment where you were tapped into the most. And that was also the first tournament after you announced the retirement, which which I found really interesting because I, I did think that you would find the experience liberating of just deciding, okay, I'm not a professional anymore. So you are not forced to do the things that you don't want to do when you don't want to do them. And you just go for the full enjoyment and uh, it makes the whole process so much easier. And also when you described that you could feel that Greenwood was a bit more tense about the whole situation because he is under pressure to perform. He has the, the pressure of he needs to win. And perhaps for you being there recreationally in a way, you don't have that pressure. You don't feel it. Uh, which is funny because all these limitations, we really just force them on ourselves because it's it's not real. It's just basically in our head, the, the decision of who we are, who we identify uh, as. It's, it's beautiful because the best indicator is how much talk there was about me saying that I retire. It's a topic five years afterwards. People mm -hmm. still bring it up. It's still, there. there is something about it where I'm still confused as to how people, how this was such a big thing. Like people made fun of it. People didn't take it serious. People, and it was like, in the end, what I did is I went from playing 3000 hours a year to playing 80 hours a year. So doesn't matter, you know, like there was not like, oh, okay, Okay, you know, he said, like, the word retirement has been used. And for me, it still perfectly describes exactly what happened is I went from playing all the time to playing almost never. And, um, 
and it's so interesting to see how much that's a topic, right? Like how mm -hmm. someone identifies himself, how it's being called, if it's a profession or a full-time thing or not. Like people could have just shrugged it off as well and be like, yeah, you know, okay, he doesn't really play much anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. Interesting. Why? You know, what, what happened? What's that? Like it didn't, like it, it took a totally different turn. I think that also shows how much this identification and, and calling things in a certain way is also is a topic and, and and that's what makes it difficult mm -hmm. it absolutely is a topic and it absolutely is a topic that sets limiting beliefs to people uh, limiting beliefs not only in in how they can grow because i've seen it over and over again with people who identify themselves for example as mid-stakes players and are unwilling to face the fact that they have to take a break step away, go back to the drawing board. You're not a mid-stakes player because it's not a thing. There's no such thing as a mid-stakes player. But if you have this belief of, okay, well, I wake up and I fire up Zoom 200 or something, and that's the only thing that I do, perhaps that's limiting your growth because you're not willing to, to do what it takes to, to face the reality, basically, right? And there's just one example of how it can influences and also the identity of I'm a tournament player, I'm a holding player, I'm a PLO player, I'm I'm a cash game player, I'm a heads up player, I'm a six max player. Why don't you look at other games? Right? Why don't you explore more? Why do you want to put yourself into a little bucket? Right? And it's so common with many of us just putting ourselves in in one little field and not exploring outside of it and not giving ourselves even the option of exploring things yeah anyway actually thinking of this thinking of not exploring the other games and <laughs> opportunities let's talk about opportunities because obviously now you're faced with a lot of opportunities of what to do, a lot of business ideas, a lot of this, a lot of that. How do you approach it? It's too easy. I know it from my own experience. Uh, it's too easy to get in over your head with a bunch of projects, which all are sexy and interesting, and you want to do them all. And uh, how do you pick and choose what's best for you? I love this topic because I feel I'm on a way for myself where that works very great. And it's a, it's a realization that I almost entirely worked off my, my far away imagination of things. So I made decisions very much based on visions or pictures. So mm -hmm. I, if I start something, it's very much built around a future idea of what it could be or should be or whatever. And shifting that to focusing on what I'm doing. That is the, that's literally the, the biggest changer for me because Let's say, simple example, the piano behind me. The main driver for me has always been the idea of being able to play the piano. 
how nice it would be at Christmas with the family or when people are here and we enjoy singing. And there's a couple of friends of mine who are in the choir and we like singing. And there's all these potential nice moments that can happen. And it's also around status. Like it would be cool to be able to play the piano and like, and I could go on and on, you know, and it's not just words, it's visuals. It's like, an, it feels like something and there's mm-hmm. emotions in there already. And then, then it's basically built around how nice would it be to. And that has been a big driver for me. How nice would it be to own a restaurant, How to play the piano, to have traveled to every country in the world, to like, you can go on with this list, uh, to climb, you know, the Mount Everest, to... Like, doesn't matter, you know, like any, anything you can imagine that went through my head. And then it's basically me tapping into this emotion. And then um, there's more or less connection. But the issue with this for me is I don't or I didn't focus much on the essential breakdown of that. Let's say now we go again back to that one minute thing is how many minutes of the week do I feel like playing the piano just for that one minute, just for the sake of that minute, just to be like, Oh, I liked, I enjoyed that minute. Mm-hmm. The answer is zero. <laughs> and that's the, that differentiation between if you try to calculate how much time I would need to fulfill that image of what I build around what, you know, how nice it would be to compared mm-hmm. to how, essentially I would love like how much I'm connected to the process in the moment, the bigger, the gap, the more frustration, because in the end, what happens is the essential thing is happening. I'm essential. Like I, because there will never be a moment, like either I force myself, then I'm unhappy because I forced myself or I focus on the moment. And then I'm unhappy because I, I, would think about, oh, how nice would it be? And why didn't I do it? And I, like I set that plan and I didn't reach my goal. And then, so, so I have, it's basically set up for frustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's setting myself up for disappointment in either way I'm going is either I do it and I'm unhappy with forcing myself to do something I essentially don't want to do, or I don't do it. And then I'm unhappy because I'm, I'm uh, not as awesome as I, I should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, if I reversed it, the only thing I did was I, I'm shifting that idea of how it should be to give it no power. It's just dreams. It's ideas. It's the most amazing thing in the world because I can feel into things that I don't need to experience physically. Like I, I still feel it's a, it's as real of an experience as other things, but I can feel myself into different potential experiences. I can feel, how would it be to play the piano? Like I can feel into this and I can enrich in this and I can get to know my, like I can feel myself. I can feel um, how it would be to, you know, to, to play through different scenarios. Like that's, that dreams is the most beautiful thing but to not give it power, to not give it power over me, to not be like, that's how it needs to be, or that's how it should be, but just take it as a dream. Just take like, as I'm dreaming at night, it's just, it's 
absolutely incredible to be able to experience already, to learn more about myself, to learn more about how I'm connecting to this idea, but to not give it power that it needs to be like this. And then to, to absolutely connect to that feeling of the essential part, the, the moment, that part of how, what do I feel like? And if I do that, the opportunities you're mentioning, they sort by themselves. It's the, like, it's literally, it's, it sounds, it, it's, it's so crazy because I don't even need to think anymore. It's just, someone asked me, Hey, do you want to get a coffee at someone? And I, I'm, then I first as a part of visualizing, I can feel like, huh, okay, how do I feel about that? And, and how would that be? And then, um, if I feel like it, I say yes. And if I don't feel like it, I say no. And I just try to be as honest to that moment as I can. And that's the process I'm working on because there are going to be things where I lie to myself and, Mm -hmm. and where, you know, there's beliefs coming into and constructs and, Oh, you know, um, that person is super influential. So I should meet. So, so kind of deconstructing these things, that's the process. But if I, if I take these two things and just am super honest and say like, no, actually right now I don't feel like meeting new people and boom, um, that's, that solved itself. And then that's actually the answer most of the time. Like, I'm just going to say no to, to most, most of these situations because I actually don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's nothing bad. That's great. Like it's, it's beautiful. And on the other hand, I want to make the company example because I built a shit ton of companies in the last couple of years. And I don't say that to impress. I say that because, uh, the opposite to, to learn, like for me, it was just like, in, in that, you know, in that sense, you could also say, oh, I invested in 22 companies and I built five of them and, you know, we sold one and two are profitable. And it's like, we have this and this much revenue. Like I could, you could spin it this way. You know, you could mm-hmm. build this entrepreneurial identity around how fucking awesome I am and like build a portfolio. And then later in five years, I'm going to say, oh, I, I did 30 angel investments and now we have the first unicorn. And I like mm-hmm. the real thing where, you know, you like the things that didn't go so well and how it's just literally like randomly throwing money somewhere and actually other people doing the work and the products you actually invest in and how much time you have invested and um, how maybe you only have 0.012% of that company. Like all these things don't matter. People don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but But that to me is the essence. The essence for me is what's the process? What's the essential process? And so when I work in a company, when I want to invest in a company is I almost did not care about the essential process. Um, And so now the reason why I don't invest in companies anymore is because my filtering process is around, do I want to deal with this product? Do I believe in this product over an extended period of time? And the filter for that is it just kicks out 99.9% of the things. That's as simple as it is. If someone shows me an investment opportunity I need to be excited about the thing, actually excited. I want to in, like involve myself with the people, with the product, with their journey, with what they're doing. And then I extend that. Like, that's also, I, I don't invest immediately. I'm like, hey, I, I'd be happy to um, to get to know more about you. I visit them. I, I, I use the product. I want to understand. And like, I don't take anything in return. I don't take payment. I'm just... Like, do I, without anything in return, without an expectation, do I feel like I want to sp- spend and invest time? And then 
basically anything goes out the window anyway. And there's just, you know, one or two things that I really, really care about continuously for an extended period of time. And these are the two projects I'm working on. And that's been the best decision uh, of my life because if I would have actually done that with more things in the past, I wouldn't have built a mining farm and I wouldn't have uh, built a marketing agency and I wouldn't have, uh, and and there's other things like, for example, we have a fashion studio in Vienna, which is not financially very profitable. And I love it. Like, I love to go, I love the people. I love to build that. I've been working on this for two years already. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love going there. I love spending time with actually making the things and, and learning how to make them. And that's for me is like, I, I love the essence of what we're doing. And it's been a long monologue, but that's my take on how I deal with opportunities. I want to stay on the topic a bit and, and dig a bit deeper because I, I really like your journey of arriving to to the idea of basically weeding out most of the things coming your way and just taking yeah. on what you really feel like doing, right? Because eventually, and I experienced it myself when I did have just like way too much and uh, just one day thinking to myself, why? Just a simple question, like, why, why am I doing, like, I'm not doing this for the money, but then why am I doing this? You know, and this notion of productivity um, was, again, probably an identity thing, a limiting belief in myself where I identify as a very productive person, right? And many times people would say to me, like, oh my God, how can you manage to do so much in a day? So I sort of pride myself on that. But at some point I just had to look at, my life and I think like, okay, well, this is really nice, the amount of things I can do in a day, but why is my day 16 hour long? And why do I have one day off a month? Because I don't actually need this, right? So to to come to like a complete um, overwork for nothing really, uh, and to realize that there's probably only like two or three things that I really want to do. And I want to devote all my attention and energy to those. But how do you approach that disconnect from the vision? Because I found that really interesting. The way you described that you you do see the vision of what would be the end result of that. What would it feel like? How would you experience that thing? For example, you know, being a, a piano player. How do you disconnect from it and not allow it to to influence your decisions? Um, I think the the key word here is FOMO. So I think to acknowledge that the idea itself is beautiful, but I don't need to possess or own all of it. That the idea is beautiful by itself without having it. And that that I think is is probably the biggest process for me is to oftentimes it was about taking a small visualization, investing in that company, that company growing, that company becoming big, that company being successful and not being able to let go of that idea or that visualization. Mm-hmm. So 
I invested myself into that idea. I, it became me. And then I, it felt like losing it when I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why oftentimes it was slightly more painful to say no than to say yes. And that's why I said yes to some things where if I would have tapped into how I feel about it, actually the process of it that is just one step further or two steps further would have just been like, Hey, I'm not so involved. Like, no, thanks. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's probably the biggest difference to not be scared that I'm not scared or I don't want to be scared to lose an idea or to not possess mm -hmm. an idea. And I think a lot of it is around possession. It's around, my worth and how that idea is contributing to my worth. And if I don't invest in that idea, then I would be less worth. And it's disconnecting that self-worth or my self-worth from that. That idea is beautiful and it doesn't need, like, I don't like that investment is not connected to the idea. Like there's actually no connection. There's nothing in between these things, but I create it. I create that dependency mm -hmm. that, that idea, that value of that idea is only, coming over to me and my value if I invest now. And so I create that thought process. And through that, now suddenly it would be scary and hurtful to not do it. But mm -hmm. that connection doesn't even exist. So a lot of it for me is around fo just focus, just focusing on that feeling and like sh not even shutting off, but just really how do I, like when I ask that question and other, that idea isn't so present, it's more like, how do I feel about that process? And then that answer is often that's that what I'm going, because if I'm not like, wow, I'm super excited. And I think, and it, it it's my, I, it's my, it's my uh, DNA then, you know, when I had a really interesting conversation about something that I'm really generally, generally curious about, it's there, it's, it's already integrated. I think about that person. I want to talk to him again. I have positive feelings about it. I'm already generating ideas. I'm thinking about how to develop the product. And if that continues, if that's the same two weeks later, two months later, six months later, then it naturally develops into that, right? It, it doesn't need to be, it's not that with me investing 50K, it seals like a bond or something like oftentimes mm -hmm. it actually creates the opposite. It forces a relationship that maybe isn't so genuine. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Interesting. And one, one thing that came to mind while I was listening to your uh, expansion on this idea is I recently reread uh, the book um, essentialism or essentialist. Mm -hmm. I think essentialism. Essentialism. Yeah. Uh, and the quote that really stuck with me this time and uh, I think the first couple of times when I read that book, I skipped over it because it wasn't even marked. But I was like, wow, this really resonates. And the quote is, I can do anything, but I can't do everything. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> yes, yes, I know that now. And uh, it's a powerful idea because it allows you to be more comfortable with dealing with FOMO. Because right? you realize that, yes, I could do that. And yes, it could be great but I can't do everything. So how about we just focus on the things that I'm 
absolutely into. When I have this feeling of, yes, this is what I want to be doing. I'm going to be doing it right now and for a long time. Mm-hmm. What are some of the challenges that you're going through right now? What are some of the things that where you're still growing, working on yourself mm-hmm. right now? There's a couple directions. So I would say one is around performance and productivity. Mm-hmm. So especially through Corona, I, I, I have a legacy of, as you also said, of a, a schedule of, of being a lot involved in a variety of different projects. And I think I created a web, I would describe it like this. I created a web of dependencies to keep me busy. Mm-hmm. So lots of projects, lots of things depending on me, people depending on me, a lot big, big team or like rather big teams of people and making decisions, thinking through things and, and each thing giving me a boost of that feeling of, Hey, I'm important. And initially I think I, I, there was some belief um, that I held that that's quite important. And it wasn't so conscious, actually. It was just, a, um, I think, a rather unconscious process after getting out of poker. And now what, what's next? What, what's new? What's now? And then it was just me diving into lots of things and then saying yes, but without really knowing what that responsibility means, that I may be saying yes to something really long-term with mm-hmm you know, like two years, three years, five years that can grow and that is intense. And now saying yes to 10 things and then these 10 things, they don't just linearly grow. They, they branch out exponentially. And then two years later, these, you know, five of these things are big and it's, it's lots of stuff. And I just, I just felt I wasn't really able to manage that properly, um, that responsibility in terms of communicating about it, but also being clear about it myself. Mm-hmm. And then, having that process of kind of knowing what I want to do, um, expressing that, finding solutions. And so that's what I've been learning. And right now I feel that I'm in a spot where a lot of this stopped. My schedule was empty. I had almost no calls, Mm -hmm. no traveling. And it threw me in that empty space of who am I? What am I doing? Uh, How am I being productive right now? What's my... What's my destiny, mm-hmm. uh, my vocation? And, and I could identify a lot of pressure there. Like that, be, being in that space was very difficult for me. The immediate, the immediate solution was, oh, okay, let me just, you know, get into something new. And I didn't. And I think that was great. I did not. I left that space open and I struggled. I still struggle. It's, it's still constantly... You know, what am I, when I wake up, when it's just like, I have nothing to go to, no, let's call it no reason to wake up. You know, these ones, I I stay up late. I wake up uh, late in the morning and um, it's a bit unstructured and it it gives me this opportunity to feel into what I need. I I, oftentimes, I didn't really learn this. I didn't really learn to feel what I had my lunch scheduled, you know, I had my dinner scheduled. It was like, optimizing for perfect performance instead of Mm. feeling of what I need, what I want, how can I do it and being independent and responsible for my own needs. And so that's a really big part um, and a big challenge for me right now still is um, to take care of myself 
properly in all ways. And that's one part. I would say the other part is um, tackling that fear of being left alone or left behind. So that's something that I think also drove a lot of my poker success is that that belief that love and affection is somehow connected to my performance or or my productivity in that sense. Mm -hmm. And performance in the sense of poker. And so in the one way, a natural driver that that made it possible around the curiosity and that enjoyment for learning, but on the other hand, also um, an, an obsessiveness or, or drive around the performance of it and the success of it. And so these things led to where, like, let, like kind of made up the path, but also, as I said, like I did it much longer than I wanted to or felt like doing it. So mm -hmm. um, that part, I think, stems a lot from, from, from my fear of not being good enough, like not, not delivering. And that's, that's also another topic that comes up in a variety of different situations in different forms when I have difficulties to really engage in a relationship because I feel like, you know, I'm being really vulnerable and maybe that, you know, that person uh, doesn't feel the same way or lets, leaves me behind or, you know, I might be left alone and I'm out there and I'm exposing myself. It's going to be really painful. And I'm, I'm scared of that feeling. Like it happened, I think specifically as a child. And now that that's a thing that's there and, um, I can feel that in my relationship too. So I'm in a relationship for a couple of months now and I'm really, really in love and um, I feel very connected to her. And so that's the part where now I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm really in this and I feel it very strongly and it's scary. It's all the time. It's, it's, there's, there's a thing. I was like, oh, you know, um, there are lots of uh, mechanisms to, reduce but but i don't want to reduce i i want to be totally there and, and totally open up to it and so i would say these are two quite big areas right now that i'm that are challenging for me mm, very interesting i think a lot of poker players experience the same type of um, behavior and the same type of feelings um especially when it comes to the drive and obsessiveness and, and having to produce and be productive. Mm. Um, especially so when you still have the identity of a poker player, right? Because you have to perform because, hey, you know, I'm, especially if you identify as a good poker player because you know that, hey, good, good poker player has to perform. You have to do it. And uh, there's such a big drive. And... And it's probably not limited to poker players, but being busy, that's easy. Being productive, that's easy. Doing nothing, man, it's hard. Especially when you're used to, like you and like, like myself, when we're used to just, you know, doing things and one project, another project, just, okay, take everything really seriously, perform there, perform there. And all of a sudden to step away from everything and like, okay, I clear my calendar, I do nothing. feels like, oh man, this is not good. And it's, it's silly because uh, why, why should we treat it like this? Why should we not step away? And even on a, 
smaller scale, I, was, I see with a lot of poker players, resistance to taking time off because all of a sudden they have to face themselves, right? Because when you're just playing 12 hours a day, playing and studying, in a 12, your, your life is easy. Even if you're going through the worst downswing of your life, your life is still easy because you don't have to ask yourself any questions. You don't have to deal with uh, anything, right? But uh, it's so powerful. It's so important to step away. And I remember from our first conversation, you you said that you did multiple times the retreat of you know cutting mm -hmm. everything out and and just being alone with your thoughts and. Uh, how powerful you found that experience. I still haven't tried it, but I, I think at some point I'm gonna gonna definitely go for it. I think that what you just said, I think is very beautiful because I, I think that nothing is everything. That's the, even the way we phrase it. We describe it as if it's emptiness, but it's fullness. You know, even the words we use, it's, Oh, I did nothing. No, you you did everything. Mm -hmm. it, it's the other thing is nothing. Oh, that, as you said, way to look at it. Yeah. When you when you play poker, it's you you or or really indulge in that clear plan. You break down life to no variables, no variance. No complexity, just very, very clear variables. Exact, you know exactly what to do. You know when to wake up. You know what when to play. You know what to like. It's life is predictable. Life follows certain what, but it doesn't. And that moment that we describe as nothing is the moment you realize that that assumption is absolutely off. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so scary. That's why that's why it gets that tag of don't be there. Yeah. Because it breaks up that entire other thing. It breaks up all these existing, but it's just when you when you deal with that complexity, when you real when you face that, wow, it's so complex. I can feel so many things. I can feel so much pain, so much sadness, so much joy, so much like. I can feel so many different things. Then suddenly you're like, wow, okay, what am I, what have I been doing before? And that initial moment is absolutely overwhelming. It's intense and it's overwhelming. And that's why, that's why it, it's also in that category to avoid. But the long-term impact of it and what it changes in the, the energy flow, like that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you said nothing is everything. If we think about what is what is it doing nothing? I mean, your brain is still going. Your thoughts are still coming, right? And it's it is everything. And when we start facing the questions of what is important, and I can't even count how many times that I have a conversation with a poker player who's going through a downswing and complaining about it and complaining about the variance and just completely in a bad place. And I would say, well, you know what? I think you should just take two days off, like completely no poker, watch a movie, get drunk, whatever, whatever you want to do, just do it. And the answer would be, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm 
solving it. I'm there. I'm just, I'm on it. I'm like, okay, if you think so, but it really seems like you need some time off because the reality of taking time off, especially in the in the downswing, even though we logically understand that it would be a good thing. It would be a good thing for me to step away, recharge my batteries. But at the same time, that's not what's happening because when you step away and you take that day off, then all the emotions come in and then you're like, oh man, I suck and this is horrible, et cetera, et cetera, right? Then mm-hmm. you have to live with yourself and your self-talk beating yourself up for being in a downswing, right? <laughs> and that's that's much more difficult than waking up the next day and getting back into action and trying to work through it. Yeah, but it's also beautiful when you do that, you know, do that 14 days, do that 30 days. Mm-hmm. It absolutely changes. Day 14, no beating up yourself. You you, you stop because you you have two choices. You can continue that and grind yourself down and just, suffocate yeah or you can accept and everyone chooses accepting mm. it's just because we the one thing we want more than that is surviving and we we naturally understand that to survive you you need to accept that mm-hmm. and so i think the earlier we confront the, the the better it's going to be yeah and it's also now thinking on the topic it's surprising how often a lot of poker players are of the opinion they can't afford to take a week off. Like if you tell somebody, you know, just take a week off right now, not planned, not nothing, just from tomorrow, take a week off. Oh, I can't do it. I'm like, really? You're a poker player. You can't do it. So if you can't do it, so who can do it? Because you don't have a boss. You don't have, a, you don't have customers. You don't have deliverables. You don't have deadlines. How come you can't do it? And again, all these things like identity, fear of missing out. Because again, the identity of if I'm a productive poker player, if I look at what this picture looks like and feels like, definitely not a guy sitting watching TV. It's a guy working hard on his game. That's that guy. So allowing yourself a week off, two weeks off, three weeks off, a month off seems like an impossible task, which is ridiculous because, I mean, if... If anyone, the poker players really should be able to afford it. And then also, obviously, the additional fear of being left behind because, oh, I'm, I'm not working on my game for a long time. So everybody else is becoming, you know, this illogical, crazy notion of, you know, if I step away, everybody's just going to be... And then we look at you and are like, well... I'm going to step away. I'm not going to do 3,000 hours a year anymore. And you're still crushing. And you're going to be playing Victor uh, next week. And uh, that's going to be the most most fun. I mean, isn't it beautiful to like, oh, I'm going to play a heads-up challenge, but we're going to have a lot of fun in the process. That's, that's just oh, it's gonna be, super nice. I mean, in the end, then that's a win anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean... You're going to have fun and uh, you're going to provide a lot of fun uh, to everybody else. Because, I mean, just the idea of this match, I'm definitely going to be watching. I mean, it's it seems like uh, it's just a dream kind of situation, especially knowing uh, the personality of Victor is going to be so much fun. And uh, it's yeah. just it's going to be awesome. I, oh, also, I also think so. We're going to have a ton of fun. Listen, I 
have like a million other questions and I could talk to you forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. I'm sure we're going to make another one at some point. And, uh, Anytime, Marius. No, that, that would be so awesome because I, I really enjoy these conversations with you and there's so much to learn from you, um, which is also funny because like I remember... You know, you were you were saying about how people reacted to you retiring, and then how people reacted to you being public about self improvement and you're doing this and you're doing that, and a lot of reactions like, "Oh, what does he know? He's just like a young guy. He's just like he doesn't know anything about life." Like, okay, this guy is taking time off to figure his life out. So you know, that's that's what he's doing, and it's it's beautiful. And uh, to me, it's inspirational to see that. You know, you're on a path of discovering what's important for yourself. And uh, the path is never straight. You also went into 10 plus projects and figured out the hard way that that's not the smartest decision. And uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to your upcoming challenge. <laughs> and uh, yeah, anything else that you do? Me too, actually. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Well, anyway, this is this has been awesome. Is there anything else that you wanna address today? No, actually, I feel I, I was actually quite conscious when I was talking, uh, and I finished. I, I realized I was wow, very very excited about the questions and the answers because these <laughs> things. It's it's not that I feel so much around. Hey, I I want to share this, and people need to hear me say mm -hmm. this. It's actually oftentimes exciting because i never say the same stuff in terms of for, for me it doesn't feel like oh I, I i trained this and now i repeat it's more i work through what's coming up as an experience and then i try to express that and it's i'm excited because it it's process it's process and progress for me as well when when we talk about it, i'm like huh cool like that and that and that actually talk for myself and then you know maybe that's that's a spark for someone else that would be amazing, but but I just enjoyed it for the sake of the conversation. Like I I wouldn't mind having this conversation even if you know zero people listen to it. I, I had a lot of fun and and maybe it's uh it's also interesting for someone else. Um so yeah, I I, I loved it and thanks for having me. Oh man, thank you. I, I'm really, really glad to hear it. And that's usually how I try to approach my conversations. If nobody's listening, do I still want to have this conversation? And it absolute yes for this one. It was really interesting, really inspiring. And I, I'm sure that there's going to be lots of takeaways for different people, different takeaways. Because, you know, once again, like with the book, like with the conversation, we're ready for it when we're ready. And there's, you know, everybody's going to hear their own thing. But I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of positivity to, to take out of this one. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description. And of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways about each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up uh, and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.